The following is a conversation between Ingrid Newkirk, co-founder and president of PETA, and Denver Frederick, host of The Business of Giving on AM 970 The Answer, WNYM, in New York City. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, commonly known as PETA, will turn 40 years old this year. It is the largest animal rights group in the world, and its slogan is, Animals are not ours to eat, wear, experiment on, use for entertainment, or abuse in any other way. And it's a pleasure to have with us this evening the co-founder and president of PETA, Ingrid Newkirk, who has just come out with a new book titled Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary New Ways to Show Them Compassion. Good evening, Ingrid, and welcome to The Business of Giving. Thank you, Denver. Delighted to be here. Speak about your underlying philosophy, the underlying philosophy of the organization that drives all of this work. Well, I grew up, like most people, caring about animals, which meant you never beat the dog or starve the horse. (laughs) And that was basically what it meant. And I read a book by Peter Singer called Animal Liberation, which is often called the Bible of the Animal Rights Movement. And it changed my way of thinking. In his book, he says that perhaps you shouldn't just be kind to animals. You should consider them as other nations or other tribes, Mm -hmm. that they're just forms of life like our own. Um, You may look different, but everyone has a beating heart. Everyone has emotions. They think. And so perhaps they're not ours to use at all. It's not that you would have a longer chain or a bigger cage, it's that perhaps they should just be left in peace. They're not ours to make into hamburgers and handbags and coats and so on. And Peter has challenged the idea of human supremacy in the animal world, correct? We have indeed. Um, I grew up in the animal, in in the uh, women's rights movement, Mm -hmm. you know, and the gay rights movement came after that. And the premise has always been that we shouldn't be looking for um, our differences. We should be looking at our similarities and we should have great compassion for everyone, even if they don't exactly fit the mold of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so the same is true. The same principle applies. If racism is wrong, if sexism is wrong, human domination of any living being is wrong. So thinking ourselves as basically gods and the rest of the animal kingdom as unimportant or even trash Mm -hmm. just really doesn't fit with our idea of ourselves as intelligent thinking people with compassion for all and respect and who understand other cultures. Animals, after all, are just other cultures. Notwithstanding Peter Singer's book, you were on your way to become a stockbroker. What happened that changed your tra- the uh, trajectory of your life and got you to start PETA? Well, I really just wanted to travel. I had, <laughs> <laughs> I had traveled as a child all over, and I wanted to continue that as an adult. I was footloose and fancy-free, but I had to do something And um, I've always liked mathematics. I've always liked figures. Mm. And for some reason, I thought, well, I'll go take the, uh, I'll study for the brokerage exam. And that's what I was doing. But in my heart, I knew I'm not a salesperson. I'm not a a person who really cares that much about money. I'm sorry to say (laughs) that it wouldn't have suited me. And then someone next door to me in the countryside in Maryland Mm -hmm. moved away, left all these cats behind. And I found myself taking them to the shelter. And when I got to the shelter, 
the conditions were so appalling, the place was so filthy, oh, wow. that people didn't care at all, that I saw a little notice on the bulletin board for a kennel cleaner. Mm -hmm. And so I went to the front office and said, may I apply? <laughs> and they said, no, you're overqualified, uh, which is something I've never understood. No one, how can anyone be overqualified for anything? You can be underqualified, <laughs> but you really can't be overqualified. And so I fought for that job and I got it. And I ended up helping reform that facility. And that was the start of my journey into animal welfare, animal protection, animal legislation, and ultimately animal rights. Well, it's been an incredible journey. Let's talk about some of this work. I think many listeners might be most familiar with PETA through your campaigns against wearing fur. What were some of the milestones of that effort? And by and large, how did wearing fur become socially unacceptable? Well, we started 40 years ago. Yeah. And you know, back then, fur was incredibly desirable. A little girl growing up would try on her mother's or her grandmother's coat, right. sometimes with fox tails and, you know, artificial eyes on the fox's heads, all sorts of things. No one thought about it. And then someone came up with a videotape, I think it was from Canada, hmm. of animals being caught in steel traps and absolutely bug-eyed, petrified. And we decided we would try to get all the groups together to do a mailing to people, anyone we could find, and show them the photographs from this. It wasn't a video back then. It was a film. Show them stills from this film. And we started a movement to say fur is not desirable, it's hideously cruel, it's unnecessary, it's a survivalist sort of clothing, you don't need it. And it took off, but it took off very slowly. Oh, yeah, it takes a while to uh, get traction from these campaigns. It probably took, what, five, ten years, maybe? I don't oh, know. maybe more. Maybe because more, yeah. I remember we were in New York, and we would actually have... Um, steel traps that we had padded and put on our own hands and we would crawl along the sidewalk mm. outside fashion shows and people would just laugh you know and we would uh, protest outside bloomingdales and macy's and so on and some people would be horrified and others would just go right on into the first salon <laughs> but today of course we've pushed very hard Yes, and we have never let up mm -hmm. over these years. And now we have Macy's is closing its first salon, as you know. But this past um, year, I saw that. Yeah. yeah. And Gucci, Galliano, Donna, Vitella, Versace, uh, Donna Karen, none of these people design and, and sell fur anymore. It's over. The fur, fur wars are basically over. Oh, that one's done, yeah. And in Animal Kind, you discuss some of the alternatives to fur. What are some of the best of these? Well, it's not just fur either. Because some people are quite stunned to hear our undercover investigations, particularly in places like China mm -hmm. uh, and in Africa for, for crocodiles, but China for angora, Badger hair, which, are, which is used in paint brushes and uh, makeup brushes, all these come from animals who don't voluntarily give <laughs> yes. up their skin or their <laughs> wool or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, they're not saying take me. Um, and so it's really barbaric how they're treated. And um, when we've shown that to companies like H and M and Zara and so on, they've said, "All right, fine, we'll take it off the shelves. We won't sell it." That the. the Zara is an incredibly ethical company, and they, in fact, gave us something like a million dollars worth of Angora mm. they had in stock 
which we then sent to refugee camps overseas for the winter in places like Afghanistan. But yeah, there are many alternatives. And you see people now making uh, fibers out of, I mean, there's pineapple leather, there's apple leather, there's grape leather, there's faux fur, of course, galore. But you don't have to have a synthetic. You can use one of the natural fibers like jute Mm -hmm. or hemp or... It's extraordinary what designers are doing these days with threads and natural uh, materials. Yeah, the technology has come so far that alternatives are so much easier than they were four decades ago. PETA is also known for its undercover investigations, and perhaps one of the earliest and most famous uh, was the Silver Spring Monkeys. Tell us about that case. That was quite an eye-opener for people. And in fact, that really launched us. Yeah, I know. Because people didn't realize you could do anything about what was happening to animals in laboratories. And most people, I think, honestly thought it's just a few animals Mm -hmm. and they're being used, they're being treated well, and they're being used for life-saving procedures. And justify the means. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And we were able to show through the Silver Spring Monkeys that it's actually millions of animals. They're kept abominably, and they're used for every full purpose under the sun. In the case of the Silver Spring Monkeys, there were 17 macaque monkeys being kept in these small cages with broken wires, Mm -hmm. filthy, not cleaned, in a laboratory in Silver Spring that was actually just a warehouse. They were getting tons of money from the National Institutes of Health, all tax funds, and they had put out for grants from everything from the Red Cross to who knows what. And what this experimenter would do, and this is not unusual that he didn't have any medical training whatsoever, he wasn't a veterinarian, he was a psychologist, he would cut open the monkey's backs, and then one or more of their arms would be what he called diaphragmated. They, they wouldn't be able to feel as much and he would put them in a converted little refrigerator, the sort you keep, you know, coffee in or something. Yeah. And he would electroshock them to force them to stop the shocks by using their diaphragmated arms. Mm. And it was just rubbish. And he said it was to help people with strokes. And of course, we went to medical authorities and stroke organizations, and they said, rubbish. Uh-uh. So we were able to get a search warrant take the animals out, put him on trial, and it was the front page of the Washington Post. It went all over the world. And suddenly we had sacks and sacks of mail and people saying those magic words, which are, how can we help? Yeah, yeah, that's And beautiful. we said, let's tell you how we can help. <laughs> we were ready for that question. <laughs> and now they're using synthetic frogs in biology class, correct? We just paid $150,000 to make what's called a syn frog, S-Y-N frog. And I've actually used it. It's fascinating. It has um, a membrane, a skin that you can cut up, Uh and its organs are inside. You can take them out with forceps, just as you would with a real frog. And of course, not only is it cruel to frogs to use a real frog, it's a stupid old-fashioned lesson. You know, little boys like to dangle the frog's innards in front of the little girls. Don't need it. Formaldehyde is used with a real frog. Don't need it with the synthetic frog. And so children today, I mean, can be more effective. They can learn much uh, easier. uh, easier, And you don't need the frog. So we're coming away from that. That's great. 
you know, let's go to sports and entertainment. Now, we all know about uh, Barnum & Bailey, Ringland Brothers Circus. That is no longer the case. But I want to ask you about two other uh, sports. One is the Iditarod, and that is a sled race for dogs in Alaska. And the other is horse racing. How do those campaigns stand at the moment? Well, the Iditarod has got to go. I mean, this was started years and years ago for a good purpose, which was to bring medicine from one place in Alaska to another. Um, and then it became a sort of sport. Mm -hmm. And now we have big purses uh, offered to the winners. But so many dogs die. They die falling into crevasses. They, f they die of pneumonia. That's the most common thing. They have respiratory problems. Uh, many of them are in awful shape during the race. They have veterinarians along the way to take some out. But we did an undercover investigation, and we went to some of the kennels of even top winning Iditarod um, champs mm -hmm. and found the way they keep their dogs when they're not racing which is out staked in the ground by the cold ice, by the sea even, 17, 30 degrees below zero, chained out with just a piece of wood, a box basically to get no bedding um, on the ice, turning in circles for their whole lives. And then those, of course, who don't make it in the race are just disposed of. Mm -hmm. So the Iditarod is a terrible uh, throwback to a time when nobody realized who a dog is that a dog is a social pack animal, that they don't want to be deprived of proper food, that they need veterinary care, and all these things. So the Iditarod has got to go. And yeah. unfortunately, some sports person has just picked it up and wants to make it bigger than it is. Yeah, yeah. And it should be fading out. But on the other hand, Coca-Cola has pulled their sponsorship from it. So, Indeed. You know, it's going uh, both ways. Yeah, mm -hmm. and many people have too. Jim mm -hmm. Beam, uh, for example. I think as soon as you point out to the major companies that this is really a stain on their reputation, it's nothing to be proud of. It's nothing they want their banner put on. Um, that Many of them do withdraw. Yeah. And in horse racing, I guess so much attention has come from Santa Anita, where so many horses have had to be put down. Where do you stand with that campaign? Well, we've been very busy. Uh, we work behind the scenes with a lot of the racetrack owners to appeal to them to please at least uh, implement reforms. Mm -hmm. And that's things like not using the whip, getting a proper track surface. Yeah. Not, and this is the big one, making sure that those horses are not running on drugs. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, legal drugs and illegal drugs are rampant I in the industry. Imagine. I mean, we've seen it in other sports. But of course, in horse racing, it's very much hidden because the horses are not going to say anything and they're not going to tell on the other horses. <laughs> but we have done undercover investigations. We've shown drugs like Lasex being given to the horses when they don't have a problem, but simply as uh, performance enhancers. Mm -hmm. And so horse racing is a dirty business. There's no question about it. We actually have a lawsuit now where we are helping a better of all people who placed a bet on a horse and lost. But afterwards, it was determined that the winner of the race was drugged up. Mm -hmm. So, of course, betters don't know where they stand either. <laughs> Let's turn to meat. And PETA has been at the forefront of the vegan movement. You have your starter kits. I think you sent out 300,000 or so just last year. And more and more people are going to a plant 
based diet, and this is particularly true among Gen Zers that I've, I've been able to observe. Um, do you plan on continuing to inform and educate and get people to try vegan to see how they like it? Or do you think it might be a bit more forceful as you have been in some of your other campaigns? Well, we're a mixed bag. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, we certainly, we give out free food samples mm -hmm. and particularly to the young, as you say. A lot of people are changing in the older bracket because they are worried about heart disease and yeah. cancer. And then people are changing because of the environment. But the exposés about animals the cruel conditions on factory farms in slaughterhouses. I just looked at a, a video last week that even I, looking at so many, found very, very hard to take. And people see those and think, well, maybe it's time. The Golden Globes, as you know, just... Um, I saw they changed their, their meal changed just before it. Christmas. 1,300 yeah. vegan meals. Fantastic. And they know they have an obligation, really, to go in that direction. Martha Stewart just mm -hmm. came up with a very funny video advertising the Beyond Sausage or Meatballs for Subway. And you're seeing this Hardee's has a Beyond Burger, Dunkin' Donut. It, it's everywhere. And Burger King just came out with their Beyond Sausage today. Yeah, it's yeah. so exciting. But I think there are so many good reasons that we can have a, a carrot and a stick approach is that we do need to nudge people. Mm -hmm. Come on, it's personal responsibility. You're an ethical person or you're worried about your health or you don't want the planet to be destroyed by deforestation, the Amazon burning and so on. But really, uh, we're able to work with corporations very nicely and say, you're missing a huge market uh -huh. if you don't put this on your menu. <laughs> and they do. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's how it starts, at least. <laughs> well, you know, KFC yep. in Atlanta mm -hmm. just tried finger-licking vegan chicken mm -hmm. as a test, and it sold out in five hours. Fantastic. Yeah. You know, you're so well-known for your outrageous publicity stunts and these controversial campaigns, many of them which have gone viral. Um, what have been so, some of the most effective, and what makes a campaign like that effective? Oh, well, that would be giving away our secrets, ah. wouldn't it? That's <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> so, well, we look at opportunities. We are opportunists. We have to keep this very serious issue mm. about the suffering of animals and the needless slaughter of animals in the news. And as you know, we have heavy competition. I mean, we're up against politics, conflict, sex, good, good Lord knows Hard what. Hard for anyone to get noticed. It is. It mm -hmm. is. And so sometimes we have to be extraordinarily gimmicky. Um, one of the things we have done, of course, is we have sexy ads. And yes, people, even if they disagree with what they think is sexual exploitation, they have to have a look. <laughs> uh -huh. There you go. <laughs> it's like a car crash, you mm. know. You don't like it, but you have to have a look. And so we will do things that are quite provocative with... Um, Such as? Well, we had a Super Bowl commercial. It's still online. You can go and see it uh, called Sexy Veggies. And it's uh, women in lingerie at a steam bath who are um, holding various vegetables. And, uh, you know, you read into it what you want. Yes. Uh, we never shoot anything that's uh -huh. totally nude. or that's, But people think it is. And so, so our sexy things really do. Do we get, hear from women's groups on that? Yes, but I'm a feminist. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've marched. I've also stripped down. I mean, don't right. think too deeply about that because I'm 70 years old. <laughs> <laughs> but even 10 years ago, five years ago, I, I did naked marches when we had to. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the issues that is quite controversial is the organization's stance on euthanasia. 
why don't you explain that, what it is, and your reasoning behind it? And particularly, this has to do with your shelter in Nor- Norfolk, uh, Virginia. Yes, we have a shelter, what we call a shelter of last resort mm-hmm. in Norfolk. And what is happening these days, the, the buzz phrase is no kill. And it does sound, I mean, who wants to kill yeah. animals? So all these shelters know that they will get more funds and more attention and more sympathy if they are no kill. But what that is doing is a terrible thing. To become no-kill in a society where animals are thrown away, where there are still puppy mills, where animals are still breeding and pet shops are still selling them, means that when someone has an aged animal or an animal who's very aggressive and can't be placed, these shelters won't take them. So the doors are closed. These no-kill shelters also, by and large, they restrict their hours. So a working stiff Mm -hmm. who has an animal they can't afford, maybe they're unemployed, who knows what, they can't afford to take to a veterinarian and they've got to keep going to work because a vet may charge $200 for a euthanasia. Um, We'll come to us. We charge nothing. Mm -hmm. We're open 24 hours a day, 365 days a week, and we will take in all comers. So... The cute and fluffy ones usually go to the no-kill, or we refer them there, mm-hmm. and they refer to us, the dregs, if you will, the poor broken ones, the ones who've been hit by a car no one can afford, um, the ones who have cancer. On our website, we have a video of our field workers and our shelter, and I challenge anyone who criticizes us for euthanizing, watch that video, mm. and then tell me what you think, because if we won't take them in, no one will. And really, they need that final courtesy, that love, being held, um, being looked after in their final moments, and a painless exit from a world that doesn't want them yeah. or a world that they've finished with. Yeah, that's tough stuff. Um, talk a little bit about language. You know, there's a lot of animalistic idioms out there that you're trying to get out of the vernacular, <laughs> like there's more than one way to skin a cat. And also... Uh, Pets. You don't like the idea of people calling their animal companions pets. Speak about all of that. Well, it's not exactly our <laughs> most vigorous campaign, but it certainly is something we think is important. Yeah. Because language is important. You're absolutely right. And if you look back at, I mean, you know, no one can say the N-word anymore. That's marvelous. Uh, there are people who want to say it. They know they can't. And that's, that's progress. In the old women's movement, when we used to march and be called bra burners and what have you, mm-hmm. you know, it was, sweetie, will you bring me the coffee? And um, wolf whistling and calling uh, uh, women chicks and so on. It, it's part of a little bit of a debasement that if you put into language things like there's more than one way to skin a cat um, – even take the bull by the horns, yeah. which is, you know, bullfighting mm-hmm. and these bull wrestling things. It it becomes something normal, and we want to get away with that. So we say, take the rose by the thorns, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, feed, uh, not, um, you know, feed a bird, what is it, uh, feed a bird two scones or whatever it is. Kill uh, two birds with one stone yeah, is kill, one. <laughs> yes, is feed two birds with mm-hmm. with one scone. Yeah. <laughs> so we've come up with, we have a little dictionary yeah. of, of idioms. So you can choose one that doesn't disrespect animals. And that's it's fun, but it's also got a good solid point behind it. Those must be fun brainstorming sessions down at your office as you're coming <laughs> up with the replacement uh, idioms. Um, 
You know, you were once regarded as an extremist, fringist group, uh, fringe group, uh, radical voice, and now with all the progress that has been made, PETA is in a little bit of danger of becoming mainstream. Uh, how does an organization keep its edge and face that complacency that can come about? Don't I know it? Yes, this is something we agonize about because on one hand, of course, it's marvelous yes. when a social cause movement is accepted. The things that were considered radical and revolutionary now have become mainstream ideas. Um, in the main, uh, no pun, but you know, you still see people walking down the street in Canada goose jackets. Young people who know that fur is, is wrong but haven't really connected the dots and still have this bit of coyote fur around their neck. So there's a long way to go. But yes, we're mainstream. We talk about it all the time. Mm -hmm. We refocus things. We had a youth group that has been pretty much inspired to become more vigorous than it was. It was very, um, well, I would say it was becoming mainstream. It's now going to be more uh, agitating. But we talk about it. We try to tweak things that we're doing so that they do still get attention. But you're right that much of our work has gone behind the scenes with corporate meetings, influencing people in other ways, um, writing opinion pieces. This book, Animal Kind, I mean, I, I consider it mainstream in a way, but also it does have revolutionary ways you can help animals in it. So, yeah, it's a hard, hard way to, to think of things. Yeah. I guess a big piece of it, though, is that you're just self-aware of it. And doing that, you stay focused on it to try to keep that edge. And it happens with so many organizations, they don't realize that they've become a little blunt. And, uh, and you're, you're, you're certainly aware of it. Talk a little bit about that corporate culture down there. You have a, a reputation of being an exceptional place in which to work. Tell us what makes it special and distinctive to be an employee at PETA. I'm extremely happy that we do have a very solid foundation of senior vice presidents. Mm -hmm. um, some have come up from receptionist or somebody in the mailroom, but they've shown their worth and they've put in their time. And it's not just longevity, it's interest and skill and talents. Mostly it's just the honest belief that what we're doing is important. And so they've come up and they hold the fort. They also hold the history of the organization in their heads because they've been there 25, 30 years, 34 years, me 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> Look at the crow's feet. <laughs> but, can't, and then, can't use crow's feet anymore, right? <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so then I think you can actually. <laughs> uh, then we have young people who these days, I mean, it's everybody's song of lament that young people today it's, it's the same reason you can't get a watchmaker whose grandfather and father and now they are going to be a watchmaker for life is that they want flexibility. Mm -hmm. So they may come in for a couple of years and you hope to school them in that time. And then if they become uh, interested in doing something else or moving on, you hope they'll take their animal rights information and educate others wherever they They become they ambassadors. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Exactly. But no, our corporate culture is... We're not IBM. We don't pay. We're not Google. We don't have, you know, childcare crushes and um, we don't do your laundry for you. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't pay you enough that you can buy a yacht. Um, but we do try to keep our compensation at a decent level. And we look particularly at uh, entry level. Mm -hmm. 
as well. I think people who've been with us for a long time are sort of used to the fact that they're not going to make big corporate salaries and they're not expecting it, whereas young people have higher expectations. Yeah, yeah. And they have meaning and they have purpose. And there's always an offset in all these types of uh, decisions that you make. Let's talk about Animal Kind, which you co-authored with Gene Stone. And in it, you talk about animals' intricate emotions, the way they communicate, their intelligence, their empathy, and so on. Share with us some of the revelations. Well, I thought I knew a lot about animals, but in researching for this book, I found out some extraordinary things that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, and I'm not recommending this, if you take a snail away from his home, he will make his way back to it at the speed of 0.02 mile, two nine miles an hour, <laughs> even if it takes him two years. Um, I also found out that squirrels bury their uh, cache of nuts by the position of the stars. And I had no idea of this. And if they see you watching them or another squirrel mm -hmm. watching them, they'll employ sleight of hand ah. and actually pretend to bury a nut there, but not. <laughs> <laughs> I was also fascinated by many things about elephants, some of which I knew, which of course is that they communicate by rumbling mm -hmm. um, underground for one or two miles where they can communicate with another herd. And in fact, park rangers have found a herd of elephants up against the fence in a wildlife park, just trembling and gathered together because another herd of elephants had told them through these rumbles mm. that there was a cull going on, that people were, sh were shooting uh, elephants in another part of the park. They also, they're fascinating, they have more genes for smell than any other animal. So those trunks that you see are able to detect a scent in extraordinary um, ways. They, they also use their trunk as a snorkel mm -hmm. when they swim. And they do swim. They're excellent swimmers. They'll really? plunge into the ocean <laughs> and swim if they can, not if they're in the circus, poor things. And they use their trunks the way we might use our finger and, uh, and thumb, our forefinger and thumb, to pick things up very delicately. Yeah. But every single animal, from fish singing underwater to mice giggling, they actually giggle. Uh -huh. um, Chickens to, have a pecking order, don't they? They do. <laughs> and, of course, not on factory farms, but they do have a pecking order. Uh, I, I just have an endless supply now of information, and I've tried to cram the most interesting parts into the book. Well, you succeeded. Let me close with this, Ingrid. You plan to continue your activism even after you die and have drawn up your will to ensure just that happens. What is that plan? Well, I was almost in, a, in an air crash. And those of us on that plane who didn't know we would live were all desperately thinking about things about our family, our work, and so on. And we did live, obviously. I wouldn't be here. <laughs> but the next day I was in a meeting and I thought, what an awful thing that my activism, which is basically my whole life, mm -hmm. the thing I want to do, would have been over. And it occurred to me that I could, if my body had managed to survive, I could will the bits and pieces of it to continue activism. So I drew up a will. I have a pathologist. I have an attorney who can manage this. And if my body is still intact when I go, we're going to use bits of it. For example, part of my liver will be sent to France 
to protest foie gras, which is caused by or produced by force-feeding ducks and geese until their livers expand. It's a mm. hideous thing. And my ear will go, at least one of them, will go to Canada. <laughs> so perhaps presented to the Canadian Parliament to say, can't you hear the sounds made by the seals when they're bludgeoned to death on the ice? Maybe the seal kill will be over by then and then we'll find another use for the ear but i've donated my body to peter to use the bits and pieces fry up the flesh with some onions and garlic let people smell it and come to see what they can eat and then you say oh lord it's her <laughs> we're all sisters under the skin well i hope this doesn't happen anytime soon <laughs> well ingrid newkirk the co-founder and president of PETA, people for the ethical treatment of animals and the co-author of animal kind remarkable discoveries about animals and revolutionary new ways to show them compassion. I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. How can people become more involved in the organization and help support this work if they're so inclined? Well, bless you for that question, Denver. <laughs> we have, of course, websites and Twitter accounts, PETA.org, and we want to help people make change. So if someone has a child in school or they're a teacher, they'd like alternatives to dissection, Resources are on the web. Our videos, happy ones, funny ones, very sad ones, are there to put on your social media account. We have lists of cruelty-free clothing choices, lists of wonderful vegan foods, recipes, cookbooks. Anything you want, we have. We'll even mentor you. So please come and join us because we can't have a kind world unless everyone gets involved or a lot of people get involved at least. Well, thanks, Ingrid. It was a real pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you. I'll be back with more of The Business of Giving right after this. The Business of Giving can be heard every Sunday evening between 6 and 7 p.m. Eastern on AM 970 The Answer in New York and on iHeartRadio. You can follow us at Biz of Give on Twitter and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving.